I'll take your Bibles and turn with me to Isaiah chapter 9, passage we read earlier. You're going to find kind of, as we go through Isaiah, that we're swinging back and forth from light to darkness, back to light to darkness again. But as we go through the book, the light gets lighter, the darkness diminishes, until towards the end of the book it's mostly light. So there's hope for you. Somebody said to me this week, they'd read ahead, and was it really going to be as bad as it seemed? Probably worse, actually, um, because this section we're reading this morning comes immediately after one of the most beautiful and brightest and most lyrical parts of Isaiah's writing. Those who walk in darkness see light. To us a son is given, to us a child is born, and the government shall be on his shoulder, and there will be peace and righteousness and justice from this time forth and forevermore. He's painted a picture of the Messiah King who's to come. It's a great picture. But the reality is that, of course, Isaiah is still dealing with the real world of his day. He's dealing with the real church of his day. And reality kicks in again in verse 8. Sometimes God sends plagues. Sometimes God sends help. And sometimes God sends a word. A word. Isaiah's soul is captivated, gripped by this word, this word of God. His soul is so full of this word that it spills out of him wherever he goes. He cannot contain it. He cannot keep it to himself. He cannot keep a lid on this truth that God has placed on his lips. This word that spills out of the prophet of God is sent against Jacob and will fall on Israel. Jacob and Israel, one and the same. But in this context and at this time, of course, we're dealing with Israel divided from the time of Solomon, divided into two parts. Northern Israel, which is called Israel or Ephraim. Southern Israel called Judah. And the division of the church, that is the division of the covenant community, back then is a standing reminder that all churches, all uh, the covenant community of God that is visible, that you see on earth, can be divided just as it is in the days of Isaiah. The word of the Lord is sent against the church. Now, you may not be a Christian person and you've come into church and you think, well, this is a remarkable thing to me. I expected that as uh, Christian people, you would be rather self-satisfied, self-congratulatory, thinking that it's us and them, it's uh, the world and the church, it's Christians, non-Christians, believers, unbelievers, followers of the sacred and pagans, or however you wanted to describe us. I'm surprised that, that God should send a word directed against His own covenant people, His own church. That's precisely what we have here in this passage. The reason why this word comes to the church, indeed, the reason why it came to the church in Isaiah's day is the same as it came in the days of Hosea. Let me read to you what, what we read in Hosea chapter 6 and verse 5. 
Here's what God says. I have hewn them by my prophets. I have slain them by the words of my mouth. And my judgment goes forth as the light. The language here is that the prophet, the spokesman of the Word of God, goes in there like an elephant in a china shop, wielding a sword, and the Word of God acts like a sword, and he wields it here and there, hither and thither, and causes havoc in among the church of God. Aren't you glad that we're not in Isaiah's day? That all we have are words today, but that's what the prophet is saying there, the Hosea, and God is saying about Hosea, my word acted like a sword, and I hewed about them with the sword of God. That's what Isaiah's word to Israel is like. Because you see, the church, if I can explain to those of you who are not Christians, the church is made up of human beings who are, like you, sinners by nature. We're trying to get over it. I mean, we are recovering sinners. We come to our recovery class Sunday by Sunday by Sunday in order to help ourselves get over it. But we are still sinners. And here's the reality. As sinners, by nature, we want to redefine God in categories that we are comfortable with. Yes, even Christian people. We want to make God in our own image. And right now, let's face it, the image of God in us at this time, the image in us, is that of socially moderate, culturally pluralistic, and spiritually vague Westerners. We don't like strong language, especially on religious issues. We want a tame God who doesn't bite. We want a lion of Judah who never roars. We want God to be quintessentially nice. Mr. Nice Guy. And I think that we want to make God in our own image. But the Bible will not collaborate with us in our attempt to reinvent God. Jesus talks more about hell than anybody else in the Bible, everybody else in the Bible put together. The Apostle Paul, who delights in the grace of God, that is, in the loving kindness of God towards us, does not hesitate to paint the bright colors of grace against the dark colors of wrath against ungodliness and unrighteousness. The Apostle John, who gives us that expression, if you've heard it before, it comes out of the Bible and it comes from the Apostle John, God is love. But John also gives us this expression, God is light and in him there is no darkness at all. The darkness runs away from the light. God is absolutely pure. So God sends a word to the church. And this word, what is this word about? It's a word that you'll find repeated in verse 12, in verse 17, verse 21, and verse 4 of chapter 10. Here's the word. For all this, his anger has not turned away, and his hand is stretched out still. Anger. Isn't that a remarkable thing? As I say, my dear non-Christian friend, you're, you're here today. You're not convinced about Christianity. And here I am saying to you, here is God's word to his own covenant people, his own church. And it's a word about his own anger. Now, it's true 
that if God had a default setting, if we could describe it in that term, those terms, the default setting of God would be love. Love is his nature. He longs to be. He is loving. He is passionate about everything he's made in the world. And he is... Uh, he just loves everything, whether it's animate or inanimate, animal, vegetable, mineral, and in particular, he loves human beings. He loves us. That's one of the things the Bible says very clearly about God. In other words, the one thing that we can say about the Christian God, and the Jewish God for that matter, is that he feels. He feels. And you take away the possibility of anger in God, and you reduce him to the Greek concept of the unmoved mover, a God who has no passions or feelings at all. But the God of the Bible feels things. He feels affection for men and women. He shows compassion to all that he has made. He shows great patience and understanding and long-suffering towards ancient Israel and towards the present church. He lavishes on his people natural and supernatural gifts. In fact, we're just being told at the end of verse 7, the last section, that the salvation of the world will be achieved by the zeal, the energetic passion of the Lord of hosts. God is a passionate God. And because He's passionate, because He feels things, because He loves, He also feels jealous when he is betrayed, or when his lover, the beloved ones turn aside from him and look elsewhere, cast their eyes elsewhere. He is injured by that. He is hurt by that. Because he loves, he knows what justified anger is when he is betrayed. Anger, in fact, belongs to the moral character of God as a lover, first of all. And we can say some things about God's anger that are in contrast to our own. We can say that God's anger is pure and perfect. He, he never has uh, a fit of rage, nor does he react in a, in a, out of pique. There's no hint of wounded pride in God, nor is there any unpredictability in God. I mean, much of our anger is, is unpredictable. Sometimes, some of you perhaps live with someone like this. Uh, when something's gone wrong, you're kind of scared to go home because you're not quite sure, you're not really quite sure whether it's going to blow up or whether you're going to have a reasonable conversation. You know, because we're unpredictable people. God's not like that. His anger is not something that flares up without warning, only to die down inexplicably later on. God's anger is pure and perfect. God's anger is passionate, as passionate as His love. And that stands to reason, because He feels for what he has made. You think about it for a moment, and you'll realize it's perfectly reasonable for God to be angry at what his creatures do to each other. I mean, would you really want a God? Would you really want a God that never got angry? Would you, not, would you really want a God who was never moved passionately in anger when we, when we bite and devour one another, when we slander one another behind each other's backs, when we walk all over people to get to the top in our career, when we blow people up in underground stations or in tall buildings, would we really want a God who was not disturbed or moved 
by the spread of sexual disease by our promiscuity or the knifing of young men on the streets of Philadelphia or the introduction of young innocent minds to sexual deviation before they're barely out of puberty. Do you want that? Do you want a God who isn't moved when we murder unborn children or break up happy homes because of our own sinful self-indulgence or contemplate the killing of the elderly and the unproductive. God's anger is passionate. And God's anger is personal because He takes our sin personally. Our rejection of Him, our abuse of Him and His gifts and of other people, He takes that personally. He takes our disobedience personally because He's gone to the bother of writing His laws in our hearts, on our conscience. Every human being has God's law written on their conscience. And the church, the people of God, have His law written in their scriptures. It is in your lap or in your hands or in the rack in front of you. It is in the Bible. There is the law of God written there. What He wants or how He wants us to behave and how He wants us to relate to Him. He hates sin. He cannot be detached and clinical about it. And that's why he's appointed a day, sometimes called the day of visitation, sometimes called the day of judgment. He's appointed a day in which all the injustices of the world will be called to book before him. He will judge the world in righteousness. And if you're somebody who's suffered from abuse or some injustice of some kind, and that has never ever really been resolved in this life, you can be sure it will be resolved on that final day. God will see to your case personally. He will give Himself to the time it takes to pursue your case personally on that day. Because on that day, all our works will be judged and justice will be done on that final day. That, to me, is good news. Now, in this passage, God is speaking to His church. He's speaking to Israel. This was a church, of course, that had split away from the mothership. Ten tribes had decided to reject the house of David. Now understand what's happened. They've rejected the house of David. The house of David is the one that God had appointed to be the vehicle for the Messiah. So they have turned away from the house of David, which means they have rejected, they've kept a lot of the Word of God, they've kept a lot of the Bible, they've kept the five books of Moses, but they've rejected Jesus. They've rejected the coming Savior, the coming Messiah, as being from the house of Judah, even though it's in their Bible, by the way. They've rejected that. They've gone increasingly more and more apostate. In other words, more and more disobedient to the truth of God's Word. God has sent them prophets. They have not listened to their prophets. And they've bought more and more into the idolatry of the nations round about. Here is a disobedient church. And what we have in this passage are two pictures. One is the picture of God in the hands of a rebellious church. And the other is of a rebellious church in the hands of God. Look at God in the hands of a rebellious church. What happens? What happens is that they exalt themselves rather than God. 
They exalt themselves rather than God. Look at verses 9 and 10. This is the root sin. Ephraim, that's northern Israel. And the inhabitants of Samaria, that's their capital. Say in pride and in arrogance of heart. There's the root sin in humanity. Pride and arrogance of heart. That's found in every human being, but insinuates itself even into the church of God. An arrogance and pride that lie at the very heart of human beings. And what happens is that God is displaced. It was Robert Murray McShane who said, I think it was Robert Murray McShane who said, that I cannot at one and the same time think I am a great preacher and Jesus Christ is Lord, a great Savior. You cannot at one and the same time think I'm great, I'm a good person, I'm a special person, I'm a gifted person, I'm a talented person, I'm one of, the, one of the greats, and at the same time think God is great or that Jesus is a great Savior. These people were exalting themselves in the pride and arrogance of their heart. And things had started to go wrong. Uh, the bricks have fallen. Do you notice he goes on to say that in verse 10? The bricks have fallen. In other words, uh, calamities have come. Their buildings have been knocked down by foreign armies that have been attacking. And yet, in spite of that, what are they doing? They're saying, we can solve this ourselves. Brick buildings aren't any good. What we need are stone buildings. In other words, let's build better buildings. Things are falling down around us. Well, let's address the problem ourselves. God is excluded from the picture. Nobody's appealing to God or applying to God and asking God to help or intervene. God is sidelined. What are they going to do? We will solve the problem ourselves. Obviously, we were wrong to build brick buildings. We need stone buildings, much better material. In other words, in the arrogance of their heart, they're exalting themselves. They're putting themselves on the driving line, uh, in the driving seat, and are seeking to resolve their own problems. And instead, instead of trusting in God and learning from the calamities and the crises that they were facing, they're trying to resolve it all themselves. I came across in Ray Auckland's commentary uh, a summary statement from Winston Churchill's final volume on the history of the Second World War. Here's what Churchill says about, about how the great democracies triumphed and so were able to resume the follies which had so nearly cost them their life. Now, isn't that a sobering word? It's about the that Second World War was about how the great democracies triumphed and so were able to resume the follies which had so nearly cost them their life. Having got out of trouble this time, they resumed their bad old habits. They set themselves up for another day and another disaster. No humility, no learning of the lessons. Well, it's the same with Israel. They, refuse, they exalt themselves and they refuse to repent. Look at verse 13. What happens to proud people? They do not turn to Him who struck them. They don't recognize that actually their problems have come from God. They don't recognize that. They don't turn to Him who struck them, nor inquire of the Lord of hosts. That word for turn there is often used in the Bible for repentance, turning around, turning towards God. They, in spite of all the warnings they'd received, in spite of all the preaching they'd heard, in spite of all the smitings that had been done to them, they had not turned to God in repentance. 
What do I mean by repentance? Some people think repentance is merely me saying I repent. There's an old hymn. C.H. Spurgeon used to quote it a lot in his sermons. With a line that says this, Repentance is to leave the sins we loved before and show that we in earnest grieve by doing them no more. Repentance is to leave the sins we loved before and show that we in earnest grieve by doing them no more. Repentance is action. Repentance is turning the will towards God, is acting as God wants us to act. And they were not humbling themselves under the mighty hand of God. They weren't going to God. The hand that smote them, they were not turning to God. If only they turned to God, do you know what they would find? They would find what you would find today. You would find that the only way to hide from the anger of God is to hide in God. That God himself promises to be a fortress and a stronghold and a place of safety for people from the weight of his own anger against our sins. And you can do that today. And we believers should be doing that today. But people who are exalting themselves and refusing to repent eventually turn on each other. And like a fire, verse 18, it begins to burn and consume everything around it. It's a consuming evil that begins to burn up everybody and destroy everything. And spares no one. Spares no one, verse 19. No one is not infected by this kind of behavior. And their leaders begin to rewrite God's law. Look at verse 1 of chapter 10. Woe to those who decree iniquitous decrees and the writers who keep writing oppression to turn aside the needy from justice and to rob the poor of the people of their right. The widows may be their spoil. You see, this is attacking the elders of the people. The elders of the people were responsible to care for the people. That was their job. One of their businesses was to judge issues that were brought to the gate of the village or the city in which they lived. And the elders of the people listened to these conflicts or these issues, and they, they gave godly, or they should have given godly advice and godly guidance. But these elders, we're told, weren't doing that. They were showing favoritism towards the wealthy instead of the poor. This is within the covenant community. This is not the world outside. This is within the church, okay? They were showing favoritism towards the influential and the powerful as opposed to the, to the weak and the vulnerable. They were doing that. They were not only doing that, but they were lining their own pockets. They were, they were uh, making the widows their prey. In other words, they were making sure the widows wrote into their will that they got, they got the inheritance. They were abusing their power. People who are in rebellion against God dismiss God. They dismiss the idea of God. They begin to behave as if they are practical atheists. They may still affirm, I believe in God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, but actually in practice, in their everyday life, they act as if there were no God looking, no God listening, no God keeping a recording. God in the hands of rebellious church. But then there's an rebellious church in the hands of an angry God. Look at this again. The Lord has sent a word against Jacob, and it will fall on Israel. God is speaking a word 
a word, by the way, which is not merely an element of speech or a sound and you're in the wavelengths here that, that's going, airwaves that's going into your eardrum and bouncing around in there. That's not the, the word of God is something that happens. It's an action. When God says something, it happens. Let there be light. There's light. The word of God is all it takes to make things happen in the world. And this word is going to fall on Israel. It had come first with mercy over and over again. For hundreds of years, it had come to northern Israel again and again and again, calling them to repentance, calling them to turn. Hosea is a great case in point. Elijah and Elisha, a great case in point. They are they're bringing the word of God to the people of God. But they turned against it. So what happens? The setbacks that God had sent are now followed by external attack, people from outside of the covenant community. Forces from outside the church are now beginning to attack the church. On every side, north and south, east, west, they're finding enemies arising, and these enemies are worrying, harrying the church of God. Leadership, the leadership of the church begins to falter and to fall. In fact, we're told that the leadership will be cut off in a day. In one day, they will be cut off. It says the head and the tail, the elder, the head, the false prophet, the tail that flatters and fawns over those in leadership, that will be cut off in one single day, and the whole people of God will be affected. And the last thing is, of course, that God gives to them what they want. Because the leaders have failed, God gives the, the people what they want in response. They reap what they sow. There's no satisfaction. There's frustration all around. I read this week that the PCUSA in 2011 had sent a survey, a questionnaire around their ministers with one simple statement. Only followers of Jesus Christ can be saved. And uh, the ministers were asked to agree or disagree with the statement. 41% of the ministers agreed that only followers of Jesus Christ can be saved. 41%. 45% of ministers either disagreed with that statement or strongly disagreed with that statement. Now you look at Israel, how far Israel had gone in this day. You look at that church and there are others that have gone so far away from the Word of God and you realize this is not something, this is not something out of our experience. This is happening around us. And it's not only on, on truth versus error, it's also on righteousness versus unrighteousness. Sometimes it's churches that are most vocal in their orthodoxy, most careful in the statements that they make and so on. It's in those kinds of churches that very often the most unrighteous, unrighteous things are being done. And it's a warning. It's a warning because God has pointed a day in which He will bring in an army and that army will demolish and scatter and bring an end to that church in northern Israel. It happened in history. It happened. It's gone. It's no longer there. There's nothing. The ten tribes disappear. Because God was angry with His covenant people. Now, I'm suspecting you're asking the question, if you're not a Christian, this is not a very 
This is not a very happy message. And perhaps you're wondering at the fact all these people come to this place Sunday by Sunday and they let you talk to them like this. And I say to you, there's a mark of authenticity there, isn't there? There's one of the great arguments for the reality of Christianity, that people, grown up mostly, intelligent, people come week by week and they will allow themselves to endure this kind of thing. It's because genuine Christianity recognizes that we are sinners. We admitted that early in the service. We have this prayer that we say together in which we admit and acknowledge that we are sin. And frankly, we have. The only hope we have is this. This is the only hope we have, and it's the only hope you may have today. God has done something about it. See, see here's God's summary of the entire human race. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. But here's the good news. The good news is that Christ Jesus was put forward by God as a propitiation by His blood. That word propitiation means what? It means as a sacrifice that actually turns away the justified anger of God. How does He do that? He does that to show God's righteousness because... In his divine forbearance, he had passed over former sins. In other words, these people back then in Isaiah's day and in Abraham's day further back than that, these people could have done what Isaiah says they didn't do. They could have turned to the one who had struck them. They could have turned to the Lord who had sent these very physical, uh, public, corporate actions against them, they could have turned to him and they would have found in him pardon. They would have found in him that the anger of God had been dispersed, had been turned away from them, that the justice of God had been satisfied because of Jesus' sacrifice on the cross. Justice. Justice is a terrifying thing. I remember going, my first experience of it was going along with family that we knew, and uh, the brother in the family had been uh, gone AWOL from the military and had been caught in Northern Ireland with his pistol in his possession. And this was in the 1970s. They threw the book at that young man. It was in the days there were no, there were no juries. The, the jury system had been suspended. It was a, a time of martial law in Northern Ireland. There were three judges on the bench. Those judges were not going to listen to any testimony about what a nice boy he was, or what a good brother he was, or how a good caring son he was, or, or anything else about him. All they looked at were the facts. He was caught with a weapon in Belfast, and they threw the book of it. Justice knows no mercy. And the big question is then, how can God, whose anger is justified, how can He even begin to talk to me about mercy? And the whole message of the cross that we're leading up to this Easter is that the Lord Jesus was sent by God into the world to live the righteous life that you and I didn't live. In other words, to keep the law of God both in His conscience and in the Ten Commandments, to keep it all perfectly, all his life, 
obeying the Father. He did that, his righteousness. And then to die on the cross, in other words, to be punished in our place, to be wounded for our transgressions, to be bruised for our iniquities, to suffer the punishment due to us for our rebellion, so that by his blood and righteousness, he might turn away the justified anger of God and pronounce people who still sin, people who are still sinful, pronounce them justified in the sight of God because God sees them through the lens of what Jesus did. Two lenses, his obedient life and his sacrificial death sees us as perfect, as perfect as him. Isn't that an amazing thing? Which is why people like us can come to church Sunday by Sunday, and we can confess our sins to God, and we can read a passage like this that is a warning to the church of which we are members, and can still go home not in the depths of morose depression, I hope, but with a joy in our hearts knowing that our standing with God thankfully is not on the basis how we perform, but on who Jesus is and what Jesus has done. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you have resolved the problem of your own anger through your own action, the action of your love, by coming to us in your Son to take our punishment, to bear our curse, to die our death, to live our life so that we might be at peace with you and have the assurance, even when we stumble and fall, the assurance that our sins are pardoned and eternal life is ours. We pray today as your people, conscious of our own weakness, conscious of our own disobedience, we pray for those who are among us who don't know you, that you would open their eyes to see it, their hearts to embrace it. And we pray that you would today help them to receive and to rest upon all that our Lord Jesus has done by his righteousness, his righteous life, and by his blood, his sacrificial death. In his strong name we pray. Amen.